Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. You can find that in your worship folder or turn there if you have your Bible with you. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is God's word. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is that will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, We do thank you for your word. We ask now that you would open our hearts and minds once again to see Christ, that your spirit would attend to the proclamation so that you might strengthen the faith of your people, encourage them, build them up, renew them in the gospel. And for those who are not your own, that you would draw them to yourself by the power of your spirit. Father, we pray for those and of our congregation who are away, who are on vacation this morning, that you would strengthen their hearts, that you would bless them wherever they may be and feed them as you will feed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come now in our journey through Paul's great letter to the Romans here in chapter 12, and we note right away that a change is happening. Something is different. As is Paul's custom, the first part of his letter was largely doctrinal or or theoretical. It was the knowledge of the gospel, what we must know and understand and believe if we are to be saved from our sins. Back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul gave us that great thesis of his letter where he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, those who are not Jewish. And now, coming here in the beginning of chapter 12, he begins that practical, that, that ethical section of his letter. You see, he always starts his letters with the gospel that we are justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone, by the power of God who sovereignly chose us by his mercy and grace to be his own. And then he goes in to the practical implications of that gospel, how it affects our lives, how we live for the glory of God, how we live before others. Another way this pattern has been expressed is that the indicatives, what God has done for us in Jesus, are the foundation for the imperatives, our obligations and duty towards God. And so we must know what it is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and to rest in him and to trust in him before we can know what it is to walk in him. And we saw that, how we know him, how he makes us his own by his grace through faith alone in Christ. We saw that through Romans 1 through 11. And now Paul's going to show us how we walk in him, how we express that faith that God has given us in Christ. And so for the next several chapters of Romans, we're going to see a lot of imperatives. 
imperatives that flow from the truth of the gospel. Imperatives of how we relate to one another as people. How we relate to each other in the church, in our families. How we relate to the world, to the government, and even those who consider Christians to be their enemies. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And what was his reply? We all know it well. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, to love, the Lord, or love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And that is a summary of the entire law of God. And it is that summary that Paul uses as the paradigm, the pattern, the structure for Romans chapter 1. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, you can see this here. Romans 12, 1 through 2 is all about loving your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then beginning in Romans 12, 3 and on into the end of the chapter, verse 21, it's all about loving your neighbor as yourself. And so you see then that this wonderful outworking of the gospel in our lives is to make us into what God has always intended for us to be. And that is this, worshipers of God who love God's creation. And it is the first part of that that we're going to see in verses 1 and 2 this morning, that God transforms us into worshipers of himself. That is what the gospel is all about making us into the people he has designed us to be, people who know him, who love him, and worship him with all their being. And Paul gives us three ways in which we do that, three ways that we worship God, that we love him, as Christ said, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the first one is this. It is that we rest on the altar of God's mercies. You rest upon the altar of God's mercy. So once again, verse 1, Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. We're using the imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial altar Paul is exhorting us as Christians, as believers, to present ourselves, to place ourselves, to rest upon the altar of God's mercy. You see, God's mercies are the very basis for Paul's appeal. We see his mercy show up in several ways here. Firstly, in the foundation that Paul uses to make this appeal. Notice again what he says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore... And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what is this therefore, therefore? Paul's referring back to something he's already said. In this case, it is all of Romans 1 through 11. It is the mercies of God manifested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And it is the reality that by Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by one man, Jesus Christ's obedience, many are made righteous before God. So all that is the gospel, all of God's mercies, 
how he's acted throughout all history and indeed even before in his sovereign will in eternity past, all that he has done to make you his own. That's the basis of Paul's appeal. That's the mercies of God. That's the mercies that he says, throw yourself upon. Present yourself. You see, God's will is always rooted in God's mercy. Secondly, we see God's mercy in the way he addresses his audience. He says, I appeal to you, and then he addresses them, therefore, brothers, and implied is sisters as well. He's speaking to believers, to those who know Christ, those who are his disciples, those who follow him. He's calling out to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. They received him, and they rest upon him alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And so why is he then addressing Believers specifically calling them to worship God with all their being. Well, that's because unbelievers cannot and do not worship God. And we shouldn't expect them to, after all. Even though they ought to worship God. I mean, that was made clear back in Romans chapter 1. While God has made himself plain in his creation so that we can see his invisible attributes and his eternal power and his divine nature. What has humanity done? They have rejected that revelation of God and they have failed to honor him. They have failed to worship him, to give him thanks. And they have become, as Paul writes in Romans 1, futile in their thinking. And so instead of worshiping God, people worship everything else. They worship the creation, especially themselves, rather than the creator. But Jesus changes everything. Because through Jesus Christ, our mediator, we can now enter into God's presence and worship him. So Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, the mercies of God in Christ, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to worship God. Now what does he mean by this? Presenting our bodies. Well, he means simply the whole person. All that you are, your very being. This is a call to total discipleship. So you see, true commitment to God through Christ embraces him in every area of your life. It holds nothing back from him. It is absolute worship. And so when we surrender in faith to Jesus, it just doesn't involve part of us, like our emotions, our feelings, or our mind, but all of us, even implied in bodies, even our physical selves. You see, what you do with your body is not neutral. That's why something like sexual sin can be so devastating to a person. It impacts us spiritually. It is to sacrifice on the altar of self rather than resting upon the altar of God's mercy. And when you use your body in service of yourself and worship yourself, you wound your very soul. Now, what we do physically has spiritual implications. And so Paul exhorts us then, give everything, all that you are, even our bodies, as a sacrifice to God in worship of him. All of the Christian life is in one that is directed 
for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. I mean, our catechism so aptly states that, does it not? In that first question, what is the chief end of man? What is it, kids who know that? What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify him forever. Now then, what kind of sacrifice are we to be? We give our whole selves well, to God. What kind of sacrifice ought it to be? And Paul tells us here. Sacrifice, of course, calls to mind this Old Testament sacrificial system used in temple worship. And there are two kinds of sacrifices in that worship of the temple. There are sacrifices of atonement made for sin, and there are sacrifices of thanksgiving. The sacrifices of atonement were meant to teach God's people of the severity of their sin, for the penalty of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We see in the scriptures, they were designed by God as a means of reminding the people of God's promised covenant grace, that he would one day send a Messiah who would be the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. But there's another kind of sacrifice as well, and it is that of thanksgiving. And we see that all through the Old Testament. For example, the psalmist in Psalm 96 writes, Ascribe to the Lord glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. That is a sacrifice, an offering of thanksgiving. Since Jesus has already paid the full price of our redemption, he is our atonement. He has paid everything that needed to be paid so that we might be made right with God. Then the sacrifice that Paul has in view here in Romans 12:1 isn't a sacrifice of atonement, but it is one of thanksgiving. R.C. Sproul says it so well. He says, it is not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement but a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has been made for us. Now, as a sacrifice, Paul says it should be a living sacrifice. What does he mean by that? Well, he's speaking about our spiritual state as those who are united to Christ Jesus by grace through faith. He's speaking about the resurrection, that we are alive, we have a new life. We learned about this back in Romans 6 and 7, that the old self, that is to say our sin nature was what? Put to death in Christ upon the cross. And that Christ's resurrection, or through Christ's resurrection, we are resurrected to new life. In our spirits, we are already resurrected. And though the body may die, our spirits yet live. And one day, our body will catch up to what we already are in our spirits. So he's saying, you are already alive. You are living sacrifice. Furthermore, he says that you are to be a holy sacrifice. And of course, holiness speaks of consecration, dedication to God for his service. God's people are a holy nation before him. His kingdom set apart by him to show his power and glory and truth to the world. And finally, Paul says that as 
living as sacrifices, we are not only living and holy, but believers are acceptable to God. And the picture there is of a pleasing and delightful fragrance, something that smells good, like fresh baked bread. You walk into the kitchen, you smell it, and you say, ah, that smells so good, and you want to taste of it. You want to be part of it. So when we as believers give ourselves freely and openly to God as sacrifices resting upon the altar of his mercies, God's mercy towards you then makes you pleasing towards him. He wants us to be in his presence, to enjoy him, to worship him. So Paul says, give yourself, present yourself Rest upon the altar of his mercy. That is your spiritual worship. Now that little phrase, that's difficult to translate into English, actually. You'll see it different ways in different English Bibles. And most of them not, are, get it pretty close. It can be translated as, this is your reasonable service. Or you might see, this is your logical service. Spiritual worship is also a legitimate translation. You see, because of God's mercies towards the believer, it certainly is reasonable to expect us to worship the Lord and return praise to him. And because of God's mercy towards believers, it is absolutely logical then to conclude that we ought to worship him as the right response But Jesus also taught us that worship is inherently spiritual. We worship in spirit and in truth. And so reasonable service, logical service, spiritual worship, they're all legitimate ways to translate this text. The main thing to see here is that he's talking about worship. That's what is in view. Paul's command to present ourselves as sacrifices to God is a call to worship. A call to worship God with our entire lives, every facet in all that we do, not just in public worship on the Lord's Day, as primary and important as that is, but Monday through Saturday as we walk in the newness of life, consecrated to God, pleasing to Him. (coughs) But that life of devotion to God is only possible when we rest in God's mercy. And that's what it means to present yourself a sacrifice to God, to rest in his mercy towards you in Jesus Christ, your Lord, and give him all that you are through faith in him. That's your reasonable service, your spiritual worship. That is how you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is a sacrifice pleasing to him. But there's a second way that we can worship God with all that we are. And that is this. Not only do we rest on on the altar of God's mercies, but we reject the pattern of this present age. So the first part of verse 2 says we are given another command here. It says we uh, do not be conformed to this world. Paul uses a word here, a verb, Uh, where we get our English word for schematic. What's a schematic? Well, it's a plan, right? If you take apart 
a, an appliance, if you've ever done that, when I do this, I usually get into trouble because I have no idea what I'm doing. But you'll see somewhere there in the back of your dishwasher a schematic. And what does it do? Well, it tells you all the ways that electricity comes in and flows to make that machine work. That's the idea here of conformity. He's saying, do not be conformed to this world. He's talking about the schematic, the plan, the pattern of this world that shapes your thought, directs how you see yourself and molds how you live your life and the way that you go. He says, don't conform to the pattern of the world. When I was in school, they still taught handwriting. I don't know if they do that anymore, but they taught handwriting. Not only did you have to rule your printed letters, but you had to learn cursive, right? And how did you learn cursive? Well, the way I learned it is they'd give you the alphabet of all the cursive letters, and they were printed out in little dotted lines, and you had to trace over it what felt like a gazillion times until your hands started to hurt, I really hated this. It's probably why my handwriting is horrible now. But you had to trace over it again and again and again and again and again. Why? Well, the idea was you would learn the pattern. You would get used to how to form that cursive A and B and C and D and so on until you were able to reproduce it. That's the pattern of the world that he's saying don't be conformed to this. Don't allow it to shape your life, to dictate how you think and what you do, how you treat others, how you see yourself, how you form your identity, how you solve the problem of sin and evil that you see around us and indeed within us. And by world here, Paul means the present evil age. It's contrasted with that age that is to come or eternity. You see, he's, he's juxtaposing once again eternity with the present the already and the not yet coming together. Now, the present age, of course, is temporal and transient. It's always moving. It's always changing and shifting. And furthermore, it is an age that has been negatively impacted by humanity's rebellion against God. Sin has affected everything. It touches, it corrupts, and it bends, and it twists even our mind and thoughts so that they are not directed towards God and worship but ultimately towards ourselves. And when that happens, we will also fail to love others as we ought. You see, when Jesus gave that pattern, that summary of the law, he said, love the Lord your God and then love your neighbors as yourself, he did that intentionally. He put God first. He says, if you're going to love your neighbors, if you're going to love your spouse or your children or your brother or your sister, or your actual physical neighbor on the other side of the fence, if you're going to love them well, you must love the Lord first. But as humans, we like to twist God's law. We like to rewrite it into our own law and get things bent out of shape. That's the pattern of this world. It traces the letters incorrectly. And if you follow the wrong pattern, you're going to learn that wrong pattern and everything will fall apart. And that is where the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of sin comes into play. But God calls us to first love him and then love our neighbors. And that is what Paul is calling us to. He's saying, listen, love God first by rejecting this pattern of the world. And then everything else will fall into place. 
reject the pattern of the world. There's a couple takeaways that are important that we get from this concerning the gospel. And the first is that the gospel is exclusive. You can't take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the pattern for your life to form your worldview and to live in this life and then merge it with other patterns of thought and ideologies and worldviews. It doesn't work. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. There is only one gospel, and we need to follow Christ, thus leaving behind that pattern of thought we previously used to live in and understand this world. So don't try to blend the gospel with other systems of thought. It just doesn't work. There's only one gospel, and it informs how we must see ourselves, see this world, and know God. Secondly, not only is the gospel exclusive, the gospel is eternal. Now, conformity to the pattern of this world, to this age, tends to view everything temporally because this world is so temporal. We get so wrapped up in the present that we begin to forget the sense of the eternal, that God is doing something far bigger and greater than we can even imagine. But when we meditate upon what God is doing throughout all of history, and we begin to see our lives fit into that picture, it causes us to marvel and to wonder and to praise our God. And it affects the way we go about our jobs, our relationships, everything in our lives takes on a new dimension. When you eat and enjoy a meal, you can do it for the glory of God. When you spend time with those you love, it takes on a far greater importance than just a temporal present moment of memories you are making. There's something eternal in view. When you as parents, those of you that have kids, spend time with them and teach them and show them, you can show them the grace of the gospel. You are making an impact for eternity. You are raising disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is exclusive and it is eternal. It is the pattern upon which we must write our lives. So we worship God when we rest on the altar of his mercies in Christ. We worship God by rejecting the pattern of this world, and very quickly and finally, we worship God by being renewed through the transforming work of God upon our mind. So again, Paul says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, and then he says, but, strong contrast here, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's how you're transformed. And to what purpose? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation of the mind happens when it is the grace of God and the gospel changing us inwardly. The mind, along with everything else in this world, as we've already noted, is negatively impacted by our fall into sin and humanity's rebellion against God. In fact, we saw that again back in Romans chapter 1. There is a downward spiral in Romans 1 that leads directly into our mind, how we think, how we see and understand this world. 
the spiral starts by suppressing the truth of God in our own unrighteousness. That is, pushing it aside, refusing to see what God has done in his creation in this world. And the spiral goes down from there with people failing then to worship God, to honor him. And instead they become, Paul says, futile in their minds and their foolish hearts are darkened. And then Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so the result of that spiral, as it comes to its end, is that terrible judgment of God where he gives mankind over to what they wanted, their own destructive behavior, trapping them in their sinful minds, in their unrighteousness, leading to their own destruction. But through the mercies of God in the gospel, that downward spiral is reversed. The gospel is the great reversal. Our worship that was once directed towards ourselves is now directed back to where it belongs, to our Creator. You see, Jesus suffered judgment for us so that we might not be judged but stand now redeemed and accepted by God. So instead of worshiping creation, we now worship our Creator. Instead of having darkened hearts, our hearts are enlightened by the light of God's truth. Instead of suppressing God's truth in our own unrighteousness, we are made righteous in Christ Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Minds that were once futile and darkened are now made new. And the evidence of that, the evidence of that is seen in how we understand God's law. And so Paul says, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that by testing, by examination, you're able to discern God's will that is good, acceptable, and perfect. And where do we see God's will revealed? Within his law, within his word. And so it is only with this renewed mind that we are able to look upon the word of God, the law of God, and it not be a burden to us, but be a joy. With a renewed mind, that which God gives us to know him and to enjoy him and to glorify him forever, his law, his word, becomes a delight, not a duty. And when we delight in his law, we show our love to God. And when we love him, we are worshiping him with all that we are. And to worship God is what you are made for. So then rest upon the altar of God's mercies. Reject the pattern of this world and be renewed in your mind. See, our worship is not some abstract activity or rite that Christians do on Sunday just to feel good about ourselves. It is not therapy. But worship is transformative. Because when you worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness, through the grace of the gospel, you will not stay what you once were. 
you will be transformed into the image of Christ. You see, when we serve God in worship, He serves us. He strengthens us. He lifts our feet up from the miry clay of our sin. And He sets our feet on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. He renews in us our, His covenant love. No, God doesn't need our worship, but we certainly need to worship Him. Because through it, we encounter the beauty of Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, we all with unveiled face, that is meaning that our sin has been removed because of the grace of God, when we come to Christ in faith. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, our worship isn't just a rite, but when you hear God's word proclaimed, you see Jesus. If his Spirit works, and your mind is renewed, and the gospel transforms you, and suddenly his law becomes a delight, and you want to do his will, you want to worship him, you want to love your neighbors as yourself. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we see Jesus and our mind is renewed and we are transformed to do God's will. When we witness a baptism, it reminds us of our own baptism wherein Christ has sealed us through his spirit and we see Christ again and we are renewed in the gospel and we are transformed to be more like him. And we delight in his good, acceptable, perfect will. When we pray, when we confess our sins in prayer, we're reminded again of God's forgiveness to us in Jesus. And we see him anew, and our minds are renewed. When you fellowship with other believers as a means of grace, you see that there are others like you, sinners saved by grace, and you are encouraged by what Christ has done and is doing, and your mind is transformed, and you are made more like so we worship him together as God's people. We participate in the ordinary life of God's covenant people, the life of the church, worshiping him on the Lord's day, worshiping him in private, worshiping him in our families by resting on the altar of his mercies, rejecting the pattern of this world and being renewed in our minds through the transforming work of the gospel. That's what we were made for. So let us delight in all that God has done for us. Let us worship him with our whole body, our whole mind and soul and strength so that we might one day stand fully transformed in that great presence of all God's people from all time on that great Sabbath that will never end in a congregation that will never be dispersed praising God for all eternity for what he has done and making us his own. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this gospel that you have given us. May we show that thanksgiving through how we worship 